And to introduce you this afternoon to our first speaker, Mr. Reg Nolan. Juneteenth, everyone. Today's the first year, this year is the first year it's ever been recognized as an official holiday. Um, I grew up in Texas, so I was very familiar with it. And um, it's a, uh, Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865 was the day that news of the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached Texas. That's why they celebrated that way. It was originally uh, declared in um, uh, 1863, but it took two and a half years to get to Texas. Does that figure? Okay. All right. Uh, today, what I'd like to do is to go through an uh, examination of the idols of the heart. If we study the Old Testament, we're essentially exploring the story of one man, Abraham and his family, and the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant passed down from one generation to the next. When Jacob, which was Abraham's grandson, na name later changed to Israel, inherits the blessings of his birthright. God sends him, his 12 sons, his wives and servants and their livestock all into Egypt uh, for protection during a great famine. They stay there for about 420 years and grow to be a great multitude of people, about 6 million um, men uh, with their wives, their children, livestock and uh, uh, servants as well until God calls them out under the uh, leadership of Moses to reclaim the promised land, Canaan. During that time, their connection with God wanes, it wavers, and they are exposed to the enticing practices of um, um, the um, pagan cultures of the region. Let me turn the lights on so I can see what I'm doing here. There we go. Um, uh, primarily the Egyptians, and while they are wandering through the desert of uh, the wilderness of Sinai following the Exodus, God has to remind them of his commandments, which he gave to them twice through Moses uh, at Mount Horeb on Pentecost, incidentally, uh, primarily among, the, uh, among which is the admonition that he alone is God and that he is a very jealous God, very jealous of the worship. Hence, he forbids them to uh, forbids the construction and worship of idols uh, uh, as futility and as foolish vanity. Turn to a Exodus 20, verses 2 through 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the uh, land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or, in, or that is in the earth beneath, or in the waters underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Yet, Believe it or not, of all the Ten Commandments, the very commandments that Israel breaks the most often are the 
test commandment of keeping the Sabbath and the prohibition against idol worship. Repeatedly, through his prophets, God mocks the construction and worship of idols as vanity. Consider, for example, the sarcasm of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2, uh, 18-19, he says, What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molten image, a teacher of lies that the maker of its mold should trust in it. To make mute idols. Woe to him who says to the wood, Awake to the silent stone. Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. Through Isaiah, in particular, God seems to delight in mocking uh, the vanity of Israel's worship of idols. First, Isaiah prophesies against them, warning them of what the future will look like. In Isaiah 2, verses 7 through 8, by the way, we're doing Isaiah in our Bible study. I should strongly recommend you guys come and join us if you can. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 2, verses 7 and 8. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. By the way, horses means transportation vehicles, whereas chariots are vehicles of war. And just to make that distinction here. Uh, their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And he, and he mocks them for constructing and worshiping the idols. In Isaiah 44, uh, he says, in verses, starting with verse 9, he says, They that make uh, a graven image are all of them vanity, and their de delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they sh uh, may be ashamed. Who has formed a god or a molten image or, or graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand up. They shall, uh, yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with his tongs uh, both works in the coals and fashions it with the hammers and works it with the strength of his arm. Yea, he's hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out his rule and he marks it out with a line. He fits it with a uh, with planes, and he marks it out with a compass and makes it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of the man, that it may be brought in the house. You don't want trash in your house, so you make it very pretty, so you can bring it inside. Uh, he hews down cedars and takes the cypress and the oak, which, and he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants an ash, or some translate it as a pine, and uh, the rain nourishes it. He shall... Uh, then shall it be for a man to burn. He, shall, he will take thereof and warm himself. He kindles it and makes bread. He makes a god and worships it. And he makes it a graven image and falls down thereto. Now, understand what he's saying here. Next verse. He, then he Okay. He burns a part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eats flesh. He roasts the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself. Yeah, he says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the residue of, he makes a god. The residue of, he makes a god. Even at his graven image. And he falls down to it and worships it. And prays him and says, deliver me, for thou art my god. 
Do you hear the mocking tone that, the, that, I, I, that God has through Isaiah here? They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considered in his heart, neither there is, neither is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned part in the fire. Yea, I have even baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. I have made a residue thereof an abomination. And shall I now fall down to the stock of a tree? You hear the mockery in this. By the way, um, this uh, term abomination has a specific meaning with the idol. An abomination idol is one that uses human sacrifice, like Moloch, Chemosh, and Milcom, those three in particular. Uh, the others are just goddesses or, uh, or the like, but those, if they call it an abomination, then they're using human sacrifice in the process. He feeds on the ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there, uh, is there not a lie in my right hand? He's got a staff in his hand, and he speaks to the staff and asks the staff to guide him. Okay. The mocking continues in Isaiah 46, uh, verses 1 through 7. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast on the, on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. He's pitying the poor beast who has to carry these things. They stoop. They bow down together. They, uh, they could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. So he's making the point that he has carried them instead of the beast which they have carrying the gods. Uh, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh out silver on the scale. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. And they prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulders. They carry it and they set it in its place. and It stands. And from its place, it cannot move. Well, one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. However, although Jehovah and through Isaiah mocks them, this warning is no joke. For the consequences of idolatry are quite serious. God considers them, as I said, an abomination. Turn to Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 25 and 26. You shall burn the car this is God's command to the children of Israel. You shall burn the carved images of the gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it to yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring the abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly destroy it, for it is an accursed thing. Jehovah is righteously jealous, and he has pledged himself as a husband to Israel. But when Israel puts the other gods uh, ahead of him instead and were remaining faithful to God, God considers their flightiness to be really a spirit of harlotry. That's what it is, a spirit of harlotry. Consider Hosea's admonition. 
Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also will forget your children. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Hosea 4, Hosea 4, 10 through 13. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine slave their heart. The people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them, Oh, staff, tell me what to do. It won't. Again. Um, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifice on the mountaintop, and they burn incense on the hills, under oaks and poplars and terebus, and because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. God calls idolatry the spirit of harlotry because Israel went seeking other gods, other the thrill of other religions, instead of being faithful to the one God who had pledged pledged himself to be husband to her. Sometimes, such idol worship even demanded human sacrifice to their children. Now, please realize this. Please realize that these idols are not sentient. The idols cannot think. The idols have no will. They're not the ones that are commanding them. Rather, uh, the deaf, these deaf and dumb stone and wood <laughs> cannot speak up. They cannot demand uh, human sacrifice. It came instead from the priests who were manipulating the congregation in the process. They were the political machinations of the pagan priests in order to maintain or increase their power over the blind and foolish followers uh, willing to obey them uh, even against good sense. Moloch, Moloch, as I said, in particular, was an abomination because it demanded the human sacrifice of infants, of children. Jeremiah 32, 35. And they built the high places of Baal, uh, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire of Moloch, which I did not command them. Nor did it even come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause you to descend. For such reasons, God warns us sternly against even dabbling in the pagan practices of Gentile neighbors. In Jeremiah 10 through 5, uh, it says, Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the ways of the heathen. Do not be dismayed at the signs of the heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. The customs of the people are futile. When one cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the woodman with the axe, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither can they do any good. By the way, this is a good description of the Christmas tree, don't you think? Okay. Uh, worshiping idols is absurd. Indeed, it is the height of foolishness. Jeremiah 10, skip down a bit to verse 14. Uh, everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, the work of errors. 
in the time of their punishment, they shall perish. As temples to the living God, we have no business messing with this. We have no business meddling with idols at all. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Clearly, Lord Jehovah does not appreciate his children going, uh, giving homage to other gods, to idols. So wouldn't it be prudent for us to, to not to be caught in such idolatry? But here in modern America, we do not generally see many overtly religious idols. No temples to Baal or uh, Jupiter. No uh, abominable child sacrifice altars to Moloch, Milcom, or Chemosh, unless you, unless you consider the um, uh, abortion clinics to be that. There are no groves built to Astarte by any of her names, or statues to angelic beings or beasts, <coughs> or beast-shaped uh, god, although the Wall Street bear and the and bull might be considered uh, statues to uh, God. Nor do we find any centralized places of idolatry, such as the Valley of Tophet or the Mount of Corruption, where Solomon had built for his wives to the east of Jerusalem. Although there might be some places that, that might qualify, in California in particular, where it might work this way. Uh, turn to 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. We'll see what Solomon did. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonites, the Hittites, from nations whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn... Turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Uh, and he had 700 wise princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, but his heart did not, uh, was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians. Notice she's considered a, a, a goddess, not necessarily an abomination, because she did not demand the, the sacrifice of the infants at the time. After Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, uh, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord, as did his father David. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the equivalent of uh, um, Moloch. Uh, Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is to the east of Jerusalem. And for Moloch, the um, abomination of the peace of Ammon. And did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. That's our history. Wow. But modern idols. Now, modern idols that we have today do not bear the image of the gods they represent. But they are no less idols for that. So we must ask ourselves, what is an idol? Anyway, an idol is anything to which we freely give our time, our energy, and the resources to the exclusion of God, serving it instead of Jehovah. Ancient Israel uh, had to contend merely with the objectified physical idols of wood and stone. But modern idols are much more subtle in their demand for uh, devotion and attention. 
indeed so subtle that we may not even recognize them as idols. Oh, certainly there are still religious idols that still exist, particularly within Roman Catholicism, the cross, bloody or clean, steeples and spires, the cathedral, the church building, the temple, statuary, the little teraphim that's uh, all around the house, uh, necklaces, rituals, etc. But most modern idols have assimilated themselves into our lives so much that we don't even think of them with any form of obeyance. But in reality, we are servicing them just as much as if we were bowing down to a graven image. Of course, we may not intend to worship the worship of a modern idol, but if we give them of our time, our resources, and our devotion, what's the practical difference? What's the practical difference? We have possessions as idols. Consider, for example, how much time, money, effort we put into maintaining our cars, our homes, our computers, our online accounts, our social media pages, our hobbies, etc. In high school and college, some of you can maybe relate to this, I had friends who practically worshipped their cars. They worshipped their cars, their trucks, their motorcycles, washing and waxing them, maintaining them at peak performance, regularly road testing them. Nothing could come between my friends and their vehicles. Everything else, girlfriends, family, school, work, took a distant second to their uh, devotion to their vehicle. And the alone time that they spent with their vehicles on the open road, I'm just going out for a drive, um, was akin to the kind of religious ecstasy. Uh, so no one dared to intrude upon that special time that they had with their vehicles under penalty of scorn. If the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, or Hosea were alive today to see such devotion to their vehicles, I'm sure my friends would have been mocked just as severely as the ancient Israelites were. As I grew older, I saw the same devotion put into maintaining a home. Real property can be extremely demanding. Lawn work, cleaning and maintenance, both inside and out, trees and shrubbery, appliances, furniture, floor care, plumbing, painting, uh, electrical work, dishes and kitchen equipment, security. To maintain real estate demands time, money, devotion, and service. We either do the job ourselves or we pay someone else to do it. One could easily spend much of his life just servicing his home. Just servicing his home. I even find myself in a, a similar situation with my computers and electronics. It was shocking for me to realize just how much time and effort it takes to maintain my system, often not even producing any kind of artifact, not producing any object at all, just to keep things running. Currently, I'm... Um, I'm running about four utility programs several times a week to maintain peak performance uh, when the, uh, against the issues of viruses and ransomware and corruption. So I get frustrated at times, particularly with the, when the issues involve problems beyond my control, like changes made by my internet service provider. Honestly, at times, I feel as though I exist only to service the machine. In truth, the computer is not an idol for me, but remains merely a tool, albeit a crucial one. However, my action to keep it uh, running at peak efficiency could understandably maybe misinterpreted as service to an idol. 
Also, related to time spent on computers, I understand that tasks such as keeping abreast of social media, maintaining web pages, responding to text alerts are also quite demanding. Although, personally, I'm not involved with any of these other than email. I'm old school. Since when has being involved with email considered old school, huh? That shows you how far we've gone. Uh, activities as idols. Our possessions are not our only idols. Our activities can become idols as well. Even hobbies originally designed for a relaxation and enjoyment can end up becoming a job, demanding a great deal of time and energy. Collecting, in particular, can make one a slave to it. And it doesn't really matter what the medium is. Stamps, coins, music, crystals, book, jewelry, fishing gear, um, uh, shoes, cars, used chewing gum. I've heard there's a collection of used chewing gum uh, as well. Once you start a collection, the collection develops a personality of its own and has the implied command to grow the collection, to grow the collection, rather like the, the, the Venus flytrap in the musical Little Shop of Horrors that demands, feed me. Feed me. This is the collection that's saying, feed me, make me bigger. In the process. Growing the collection requires money to invest in the new acquisition, time to search for the appropriate addition. Uh, further, collections demand support structures, such as organizational systems, display cases. Um, and okay, as the collection grows, sometimes it requires reorganizing the, the, the collection, restructuring it with new accommodations for it. Soon the collection will outgrow the previous accommodation will require expanded uh, facilities. I have heard of some collection growing so huge that they demanded not just a display case, but entire rooms or maybe even additional buildings to house the collection. Jay Leno's car collection comes to mind in particular. Um, let's see. Let's, I'm going to skip a bit here. Um, You've got other hobbies. That, uh, for exercises, for example, can become our masters. The, the workout, the body actually says, I need my run. I need my workout. So we, we obey it. The biggest one, of course, is uh, television. It has a programming schedule, and we must conform to it. Well, that's not as much true anymore with the on-demand uh, viewing. However, the kind of programming doesn't matter. It could be a soap opera, a TV series, a game show, sports, even religious program. In any case, we dutifully gather before this electronic idol at the appropriate time and give it our time and attention for the duration of the program. It's called appointment TV. Have you ever heard of someone give us their excuse for leaving? Oh, we've got to get home or we'll miss our blank program. That's an excuse some people use. In, a, in addition, the, con the controlling nature of the programming proper, television, movies, sports, and music industries have also produced human idols. We call them celebrities. Okay. Um, who whom millions of fans follow faithfully. Indeed, they're practically worshipped. Uh, they are the demigods of the modern age. Uh, 
not unusual for fans to, uh, to schedule a portion of their lives around a concert tour, a live per, uh, appearance event, a Broadway show, a sporting event such as the Super Bowl, March Madness, the Olympics, or the World Cup. They will travel to distant locations for a viewing and will pay handsomely for a personal interview or even a fist bump from their idol. Ancient stone or wooden idols rarely has such devoted followers. Now to the, the key verse that sparked this whole message, idols of the heart. These examples illustrate what makes an idol for us is how we feel about them in our heart. That's what Ezekiel will call the idol of the heart. Ezekiel 14, 1 through 11. Now some of the elders came to me and sat before me, and, and the word of the Lord and, and saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their heart and have put them and have uh, put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before them uh, what causes him to stumble into iniquity and, and, and then comes to the prophet and, and I the Lord will answer him, who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, turn your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel, of the strangers who dwell on the land, who separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts before him that which causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes the prophet to inquire of me and, and concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the uh, midst of my people, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet indeed uh, it is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, uh, have uh, induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people. Um, and they shall bear their iniquity, the punishment of all. Okay, clearly, the idols do not have to be things at all. Rather, we make things into idols by the attitude we have toward them in our hearts. Indeed, some things are um, not things or activities or at all, but they're abstract concepts that we have come to worship, such as wealth or power and control, career and fame and adoration, body image, family or mates, intellect, politics, freedom, and personal rights, even independence and, and self-determinance can become idols. The biggest one, of course, is the idol of wealth. It is known as, traditionally as greed, avarice, covetousness, or love of money. Scripture records over 70 condemnations of avarice and, and overtly uh, equates it with idolatry in Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desire and covetedness, which is idolatry. So the, what you have in the heart, this greed, this desire for money, uh, is idolatry. 
And Paul declares that it will be prevalent in the latter days. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, when men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, uh, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godness but denying its power. From such people turn away. Yet as Solomon warns, worshiping wealth is a futile vanity. It's a futile vanity. Ecclesiastics 5.10 says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Proverbs 1.19, We are, so are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. That's an important statement. It takes away the life of its owner. Indeed, wealth, ironically, makes slaves of its owners. Likewise, Jesus warned overtly against the danger inherent in covetousness. He says in Luke 12, 15, uh, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In fact, he even warned that the love of God and the love of money are mutually exclusive. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The dangers of futility, of uh, 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 wealth, have long been understood. Uh, not only in scripture, but also in pop culture. Take, for example, we can't forget the lesson of King Midas. You know, everyone knows King Midas, right? Okay, and this was a guy who loved wealth so much that he was, we wished for and was granted the Midas touch, where anything he touched would turn to gold. Obviously, eating became an immediate problem, right? Because you pick up your, your food and immediately it turns to gold. Gold is not very nutritious or digestible. Okay, or, um, but what drove home the lesson that gold was not the most valuable thing in the world was when his young daughter ran to him for a hug and a kiss and immediately upon touch became a lifeless statue of gold. He was heartbroken, right, quite rightly so. And he, they rescinded his gift or his curse, whichever way you want to look, look at it, um, because of his heartbroken. Science fiction is also railed against over what value and wealth. In fact, Gene Roddenberry, uh, through the Star Trek franchises, created an entire race of beings, the Ferengi, with their 285 rules of acquisition to highlight the absurdity of value and wealth among all. Uh, still, we have people who have not learned that lesson and continue to worship the almighty dollar as they practically bow before the total animals of the Wall Street uh, uh, bear and bull. I am out of time. There's all sorts of other kinds of idols. There's the idols of power and control, the idol of work and career, the idol of narcissism and vanity, the idol of hedonism, which is pleasure-seeking, 
an idol of family. Believe it or not, family can be an idol. Idolatry need not be something as obvious as hedonism, for example. Anything can become an idol, even things that we would never suspect. Family, for some people, family is everything. Children idolize their parents. Parents adore their children. Some men practically worship their wives, placing them up on a, a pedestal, obeying their every command. Although that may be more out of self-preservation than out of fear. Uh, Okay, uh, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And uh, whoever does not bear his cross and come, to, come after me cannot be my disciple. He was not condemning the natural love we have for our family, but he was condemning making him into an idol to worship more than God. And in its extreme form, this becomes the ancestor worship of Shintoism that we found prevalent in Japan. Intellect can be an idol. I had professors that, that would do that. They didn't pay attention to Solomon's word that there is a, uh, the making of books, there is no end. Political ambition is so obviously idolaters, I don't need to discuss it, really. But they all say, all of these, uh, these idols, they are empty inside. They can never be satisfied. They're all saying, feed me. Give me more. Feed me. That seems to think. Conclusion. With the broader view of idols of the heart, I can better understand why Israel so easily fell into idolatry. I'm not trying to excuse it, but just to understand it. If we really want to understand the futility, the vanity of idol worship, then we need to look no further than King Solomon. Here we have a man blessed by God beyond measure, with great wisdom, knowledge, and insight, with unequal wealth, the power of an absolute monarch, worldwide fame and notoriety, 700 wives and 300 concubines, none of which gave him the love he needed, with manservants and maidservants to do his bidding, with power and authority over armies, with fear and respect to world leaders, with great houses, temples, and innovative structures to his honor, with unmatched invention, ingenuity, and leadership, with noteworthy uh, peace and progress throughout his long reign, with libraries, treasures, and many books, with long life, with great glory, and a peaceful death. Yet despite all his blessings, I cannot shake the feeling that Solomon may have died and an unhappy, bitter, lonely old man. He gave himself over to all to experience all that life had to offer, yielding to the idols of his heart, but never ever being satisfied. Worse, throughout it all, his mind never left him, so that he was acutely aware of the futility as he experienced it. To be fair, Solomon does seem to have come back to God in the end, but what a price he paid. What a price he paid. I'll read the concluding verses of uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 7 and 8. Then shall the dust return to earth as it was. The spirit shall return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandment, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. Indeed, anything can become an idol if we give ourselves over to it. Examine your lives. 
I know I've got a lot of work to do. And put aside anything that even smacks of idolatry, especially beware of anything that demands, feed me, that demands your attention. For it may be an unrecognized potential idol. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Um, Ezekiel 33, um, verse 17 says, Yet the way of your people say, The Lord, uh, the way of the God is not fair, but it is the way, it is their way which is not fair. Personally, I am glad that God is not fair, but merciful. If we were completely fair, rendering justice instead of mercy, we'd all be in a heap of trouble. We've all been here. I am reminded of the parting toast among criminals that says, may we get what we need, if not what we want, but may we never get what we deserve. 